If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Early in the Second World War, a Gothic castle in Germany was converted into a camp for the most troublesome Allied prisoners. That castle was Colditz, and its name has become synonymous with ingenious escape attempts made by daring Brits in the face of their German captors. But that's not the whole story. And in his new book, the best-selling author and historian Ben McIntyre goes behind this myth to explore the real experiences of the prisoners and guards holed up in Colditz. He spoke to Rob Attar. So, Ben, at the start of your book, you describe the myth of Colditz that needs to be challenged. So I wonder if you could explain to our listeners what this Colditz myth is and how it came about. Well, those of us of a certain age grew up with the black and white, the great black and white BBC TV series of Colditz. And in my case, also grew up with the board game of Escape from Colditz. Um, Colditz was kind of steeped into, into my childhood and lots of other people's childhood. But, it, but it, often the story of Colditz followed a very particular pattern. And it was a story of brave... British men outwitting the Germans and tunnelling out of this vast Gothic castle in a way that sort of continued the war by other means, if you like. It, was a, it seemed to sort of it dignified the whole prisoner of war experience as a kind of extension of a gallant kind of rather old-fashioned sort of war. And, of course, that is true of Colditz, but it is only partly true of Colditz. And like all myths... The reality is actually much more complicated and and I found much, much more interesting than that rather black and white moral fable that that we'd all inherited. I mean, you know, Colditz was a place that, you know, there there were acts of extraordinary courage and resilience and, and even heroism, rather overused word, but nonetheless. But also there was a whole other set of behaviors. And of course, human beings are very different and they behave very differently 
in different circumstances. And I found, in fact, that Colditz was really a crucible for the most amazing variety of human responses to circumstances that were beyond their control. And while much of it was, was to be applauded, some of it was less so. And that, that, to me, was terribly interesting. And do you think this myth of Colditz fits into a pattern of other myths that Britain or British people tell ourselves about World War II? Or is there something unique about this camp? Well, the, other, the answer to both those questions is yes. Uh, I mean, it does fit into the tradition of sort of black and white dam busters, escape, you know, the great escape. Um, you know, th- those stories that we told ourselves in the immediate post-war period and that have continued to the present day about... You know, in a way, it's the last obviously moral war. You know, we inherited the idea that this was a war of, of, of sort of very straight morality, really. There were winners and losers. There were goodies and baddies. And, you know, we, we knew which side we were on. Of course, again, reality is much more complicated than that and much more interesting. Um, but then Colditz has a particular grip, I think. I mean, there's something about the romance of the castle, the, you know, the, the way, the ingenuity with which the different nations within the prison interacted both with each other and and sort of collaborated to outwit the Germans, but also to escape from a place that was built and intended to be impossible to escape from. So, So that lends the story a kind of particularly vivid romance i think that, that that makes it unique i mean it's interesting i mean if if there is one prisoner of war camp in history that pretty much everyone knows it's colditz and actually i wonder if you could say something about colditz castle itself what what kind of vision would have would a prisoner of war have encountered when they first arrived there well it was a pretty terrifying place uh, it's a vast 700 room gothic schloss on top of a, a, a mountain, overlooking um, the village of Colditz. It's a very dominating, domineering piece of architecture, built in the 11th century and intended to intimidate. I mean, it was it, it had a dual function, Colditz. One, it was built by the electors of Saxony, effectively as a demonstration of power. It was, it was to show that, that who was boss. And it was also used from its very earliest times to incarcerate people who who did not fit in with with the existing power regime and often those were members of the elector's own family who were locked up there but over the years it had been a psychiatric hospital a prison a a place where um the electors would would put their unwanted and dangerous siblings and so on so it's always had a history of being a place where people were were there against their will, really, in, in the large majority. It's a magnificent place. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's actually rather beautiful, Colditz. It's now, since the war, it's been painted white. In fact, I spent I spent part of last summer living in Colditz. Part of it is now a, a sort of um, a youth hostel. Everyone's got to spend a summer holiday somewhere, and I chose to spend mine in Colditz. And it was actually, it's actually rather a beautiful place, um, but at the time, I mean, for the prisoners arriving there in, in 1940, 1941, it must have been absolutely terrifying. And the prisoners who were sent to Colditz weren't always just ordinary prisoners, were they? There was often a special category of people who ended up there. By definition, they were the most difficult prisoners. The, the German word is Deutschfeindlich, which literally means uh, German unfriendly. They were people who had demonstrated in other prison camps that they were going to try to escape, that they were recalcitrant, they were unruly, um, and they were going to make trouble. You know, and so Deutschfeindlich was a was a, 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 a description. It was a sort of red tab that would be put on your file as a prisoner to show that you were trouble. 
And so the German idea was to sort of herd all these troublemakers together in one place in a castle that would be impossible to escape from. Uh, the only problem with that, well, it was twofold. One is that actually Kolditz, while it was very uh, impressive to look at, was full of holes. You know, it was full of ancient cubby holes and holes in the ceilings and ways to get in and out and so on. So it was actually not a very good place to have a security camp. Much better to have a field surrounded by barbed wire. And the second effect was that if you put all the, the naughtiest, they used to call themselves the Naughty Boy Club, you put them all together... As we all know, if you if we put a lot of naughty boys together, they egg each other on, and pretty soon your house is on fire. And and that is pretty much what happened at Colditz. Is is it developed its own, um, really its own sort of culture, really of sort of defiance, and and that was kind of central to it. And the other thing to say about the prisoners of Colditz was that they were officers. This was an officers' camp, which gave it a very particular kind of status, if you like, because officers under the Geneva Convention were treated differently and better than ordinary soldiers, than ordinary privates who'd been captured. But one of the first things I discovered about Colditz, which I had never known, was that, again, under the Geneva Convention, these officers had ordinary soldiers, orderlies, prisoners, to look after them, <laughs> to look after them, to polish their shoes, to make their food, to bring up their bath water. So right through the middle of Colditz was this unbridgeable social division, really, between the officers who made up the majority and the orderlies who were, as it were, under them, under their command, and were not allowed to escape. I mean, the orderlies were, were not encouraged to get out. They were there to serve. And that, you know, that's fascinating to me. And there was very early on, some of the orderlies went on strike. It's just said, we're not doing this anymore, which again is a sort of way in which Colditz was a microcosm, really, of the outer world, which makes it rather remarkable, I think. So there were clearly divisions in Colditz based on class, but how did the different nationalities and ethnicities get along there? Well, fascinatingly, sometimes very well, sometimes in, in sort of rivalry. It was a little like the war, again, on the outside world. I mean, what you had there were Polish, French, Belgian, Dutch and British, and, and latterly American. Now, they were all allies, technically, um, but like all allies, they didn't always get on terribly well. And, and certainly in the initial period in Colditz, attempts to escape, the different nations were tripping up over each other. Um, you know, they were, they were actually upsetting each other's plans to escape. So they did establish sort of international escape committee, which sort of worked. It's a little like the EU, if you like. I mean, it worked when it worked; it worked brilliantly. When it didn't work, it was it was it was a real problem. Um, uh, and it's in a way, I loved that aspect of it too. Looking at the ways that the different nations, many of whom, of course, had never encountered other nationalities before. I mean, these were mostly, at least initially, professional soldiers, who whose you know contact with other people other nations had been very limited and so you it was fascinating they hadn't they hadn't believe it or not an olympic games which they held um really quite on in the colditz story um where they had various different sports the teams competed nationally as it were and it brought out as one of the observers said all the sort of national stereotypes you could you could wish for you know the the poles kind of very focused and 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 you know wanting to win the french being sort of very laid back about it or and the brits just not caring and laughing at everybody so you know so you did have a sort of a sort of retreat international stereotype but on the whole the sort of in a way the cosmopolitan nature of colditz was another thing that gave it this very particular character and I believe there were also some uh, Jewish prisoners in Colditz. I mean, how were they treated, both by those around them, but also by the German guards? 
Well, there's a racial story within within Colditz, again, which has really never been told properly before, which was uh, quite early on in Colditz history, the, the French officers insisted that, that they would not be billeted with the Jewish French officers. It was a very shocking moment, actually, where they said, you know, and the, you have to bear in mind this is very early on in the war. Vichy, um, the collaborationist Vichy government is operating in southern France. And quite a few of these prisoners are very pro-Vichy. And some of them are clearly extremely anti-Semitic. And the Germans, of course, saw this as a propaganda opportunity and immediately herded the French Jewish prisoners, of which there were about 60 or 70, into a special uh, sort of um, uh, barrack, really, in the attics. It was much smaller, much more uncomfortable than the larger things. And this immediately became called the ghetto. And that, that created a huge tension, actually, between the French and the British. Some of the British uh, were absolutely scandalised um, that this, A, could happen, and B, that the Germans could allow it to go ahead. Um, and it was a very shocking moment. But it's not, you know... Again, the race story within Colditz has, 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 has sort of been suppressed, really, because it doesn't fit into the national mythology. And one of the other stories that, that really leapt out at me is the story of the only non-white soldier in Colditz, who was a man called Berendranath Mazumdar, who was a, an Indian doctor um, who trained in London and volunteered. He was in the Royal Army Medical Corps, um, and he was taken to Colditz. And he suffered the most terrible racism there. But, but to our shame, not really from the Germans. The Germans saw him as a propaganda opportunity uh, from the British. You know, he was treated as a second-class citizen, and, and that's very hard to write. But it's something that in our sort of modern sensibilities, I think very important to know that there is this racial race story within, within the story we've all inherited. How did the uh, German guards treat the prisoners at Colditz? I mean, you've already described how these were people who were known to be German unfriendly. Did that mean that the guards were in turn unfriendly to them? Well, no, fascinatingly, uh, Colditz was run by the German army. Uh, it wasn't a concentration camp. It wasn't, these weren't SS fanatics. These were professional army soldiers. And actually, they went out of their way to observe the rules of the Geneva Convention. They, on the whole, they treated the British, not all of them, but but they tended to treat the prisoners as officers and gentlemen, if you like, and the prisoners expected to be treated that way. There were very formalised rules about, about what you could and couldn't do. Now, that said, you know, if they were escaping, they could be shot at. I mean, it, it's not as if it was without danger. And among the German um, contingent were some pretty grotesque, extreme Nazi fanatics. Not, I have to say, very many. But again, this is sort of illustrates the point I was sort of making at the beginning, which is that there is a huge variety of human nature inside this, this sort of theatre, if you like. And one German guard in particular, a man called Reinhold Eggers, um, who ended up being the sort of security chief of Colditz. And now he was a sort of old-fashioned Prussian military man. He wanted Germany to win the war, and he wanted to stop anybody from escaping from the castle. But within that, those confines, he was actually a man of great um, humanity and considerable civilization. He was also an Anglophile. He'd actually taught at a, at a school in Cheltenham before the war and had done a PhD on British education systems. So he believed he understood the British and he could never quite get over the fact that the British inside Colditz were so rude to him. And the people of Cheltenham had always been terribly polite. Um, but he sort of had a, 
you know, he was he was a man of great civilization, and and so he died, he bucks the sort of image of the sort of brutal and sadistic Nazi guard. So again, you have a variety of human nature on both sides. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And he did a sort of cartwheel on the top, landed beautifully on the other side, like the thoroughbred taking a steeplechase fence, and then ran up the hill being shot at by the German guards, climbed over the wall, uh, walked about 70 miles to the nearest station, then stole a bicycle, then cycled along the autobahn. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And did the prisoners appreciate the fact that the guards were treating them relatively well? What kind of view did they have of their captors? Well, I mean, again, it depended on the individual. Some really became quite friendly with the guards. You know, there was trading going on, particularly with the sort of, you know, the sort of privates um, who were sort of manning the sentry posts. And some got on with them well. There were moments of of deep antagonism. There were moments of direct confrontation, very, very dangerous when shooting would break out. One of the things, one of the ways, that, particularly the British contingent, one of the ways the Brits dealt with the kind of boredom and the frustration of this long imprisonment, and bear in mind that being in, prison, in a prisoner of war camp is quite different from being in a prison. These are all people who were innocent. They, they'd committed no crime to be locked up. And also there was no end in sight to their incarceration. They had no idea, particularly in the first half of the war, when or if they might get out. So that added to the to the huge tension within Colditz. And one of the ways they got round it was by what they called goon baiting. Now goon is a sort of slang term was a slang term um, for the German guards. And huge amount of ingenuity went into trying to mock tease, enrage, uh, defy the, the, the German, the German sentries and, and officers. And they, they went to huge lengths to do this, um, you know, teasing them, mocking them, whistling on parade, refusing to stand up straight, wearing clogs to roll calls. Generally, anything they could do to drive them mad, really, they did. Um, and it was a very puerile. And it came straight from a kind of English public school tradition of ragging the masters really and it was incredibly babyish but it sort of in a way let off steam in a way that I think was extraordinarily therapeutic my my favorite story in the goon baiting tradition was at one point the prisoners discovered a wasp's nest in in one of the walls and they spent weeks catching wasps putting them in matchboxes and then very carefully attaching thread to their legs with a, with a piece of cigarette paper attached on which was written Deutschland kaputt, um, Deutsch, you know, Germany is finished. And then one day on parade, in the early morning parade, on a, on, on a signal, they all opened these matchboxes and hundreds of very angry wasps carrying anti-German propaganda, rose into the sky above Colditz and presumably went on to sort of sting and inform many people around the country countryside of what they felt inside Colditz. Completely mad, very time-consuming, um, 
really not very grown up, but also in a way rather magnificent. And I suppose the thing that Colditz is best known for today is is the myriad escape attempts that took place. Is this part of the Colditz myth, or was Colditz actually home to an unusual number of escape attempts? Well, the, because it, it was home to people who had tried to escape from other places, yes, there were more attempts to escape from Colditz than any other prison. But but escaping from Colditz itself was only half the battle. I mean, once you were out of Colditz, you had to then get out of Germany, which in many ways was much, much harder. I mean, the, getting across the frontiers was the real, in a way, the real challenge. I discovered that actually there were fewer escape attempts than I had thought, uh, and, and certainly fewer successful ones. Well, I said at the beginning that actually it wasn't an ideal place to have a prison, but it did become, particularly under Eggers, it became harder and harder to get out. The security was, was increased, and by the end of the, uh, 1944, very few prisoners were still trying to get out. It had become just far too dangerous. And so, you know, it, the, the story of everybody trying to escape all the time isn't quite right. Everybody was prepared to, and willing, delighted to sort of contribute to escape attempts. The hardened escapers, the ones who were absolutely determined to get out and take that risk, were a minority. There, there weren't that many of them. Everyone was prepared to collude and help and act as lookouts and help create passes and false uniforms and so on. But but it, it's not quite the single-minded story that, again, we inherited from myth. Now, in the book, you highlight many of the escape attempts that took place. I wonder if there are one or two that particularly grabbed you that you'd like to share with us. Yes. Uh, I mean, in a way, the most famous of them was the escape of Airy Neve, who would go on to become um, an MP in Britain and one of Margaret Thatcher's most senior advisers, killed by a by a terrorist bomb uh, in, later on in his career. But he was a very young man at this point, and his escape was, was pretty remarkable. There was a sort of space beneath the floor of the theatre in Colditz. Colditz has its own theatre, rather beautiful, actually. Um, and, and they worked out they could get into the floor, and then from there they could access uh, a witch's walk, a kind of tunnel that ran across one of the, um, one of the arches and that ended with a locked door into the German guardroom. Uh, so one night, Airy Neve and a, an accomplice got themselves through the theatre floor, went along this corridor, unpicked the lock into the German guardhouse and strode out of the front door wearing made-up German uniforms as two German officers. I mean, they had managed to produce replicas that were virtually identical to the real thing. And they walked across the moat. They walked down a, a little path from the moat past the, the barracks and climbed over the wall and got out. I mean, it, is, it was an astonishing escape, incredibly brazen. Um, another one that I particularly liked was, was one by a French aristocrat called Pierre Mérès Lebrun, who was a cavalry officer, incredibly sort of impeccably turned out at all times, who, who got an accomplice effectively to help him vault over the... Uh, wire enclosure that surrounded the exercise yard and he just he ran towards it and and then his accomplice put his hands into a stirrup and hurled him over the top and he did a sort of cartwheel on the top landed beautifully on the other side like thoroughbred taking a steeplechase fence and then ran up the hill being shot at by the german guards climbed over the wall uh, walked about 70 miles to the nearest station then stole a bicycle then cycled along the autobahn and then miraculously managed to walk across to smuggle himself across the border into Switzerland. Again, it's, it's a really, a, a pretty epic story, that one. 
Um, and I guess the, the third one that I would just simply give your listeners is the story of this Indian soldier, Birendranath Mazumdar, who, despite being told that he was not allowed to escape because of the colour of his skin on the grounds that he would be picked up immediately, in, went on hunger strike, insisted he be moved to an Indian prison, an all-Indian prison of which there were very few. In, in uh, this, The one he ended up in was in uh, occupied France. He managed to escape from that, walk 700 miles uh, across the border into Switzerland. And it, his story is absolutely extraordinary, I think. And I mean, these stories are, are extraordinary, as you say, and, and your book is, is full, full of these really remarkable episodes. But do you think sometimes these amazing escape attempts actually cover up the fact that for many people, Colditz was a place of extreme boredom and actually inactivity. I think that's a very, very good point. I mean, we most war stories are about what happened, you know, moments of colour and, and, and excitement and adventure and risk and so on. Most of Colditz was unbelievably boring. I mean, you know, nothing was happening. And, and here's the other point, Rob, is that because they were officers, they were not allowed to work. Um, they were literally not allowed to work. They, they, were, they, they were banned from doing so. The orderlies could work for them, but they themselves could not work. Now, if you've got... In other prison camps, you know, they were, t- they were made to labour. It, was, it was, wasn't pleasant. It was, it was extremely unpleasant. But nonetheless, it did occupy the mind. The officers had nothing to do and were not allowed to do anything. And so they responded to it in a, in a huge variety of ways. Some, as I say, took to goon baiting. Some became obsessed by escaping. But quite a lot of them retreated into literature, you know, books were plentiful in Colditz. Various publishers were prepared to provide books for prisoners, and they just sort of gorged themselves on literature. Some took correspondence courses. Many, of course, because it was so boring, the drama played a, a huge part in Colditz, and the theatre became an absolute focal point. I mean, there was it was virtually a new production there every few days, and it was packed out, and the Germans would come too, and and sort of. That was a way of escaping, really. I mean, it was, it was another form of escapism, if you like, without actually escaping. And they put on really dozens and dozens of different productions, plays, reviews, pantomimes, skits, and a lot of musical stuff as well. I mean, there were orchestras in Colditz. There were chamber groups. There was a Hawaiian string band. There, were, there was a Polish choir, you know. So, so that, in a way, is what fascinates me, is that, you know, here you have a kind of completely sealed world, in which men, and mostly men, well, they are all men, except there are, there are women who play an important part in the Colditz story, um, men try to deal with these circumstances that are absolutely not of their making and, and the, the variety of ways that they did it. And, of course, Britain being Britain, the British being British, they began to set up clubs, bridge clubs, chess clubs, sports clubs, but also those kind of social clubs, if you like, that are so much a part of sort of... British, particularly pre-war culture. And believe it or not, there was a Bullingdon club in Colditz. There was a club that was exclusively for those who had belonged to the Bullingdon club at Oxford. So you get this sort of intense social stratification as well, which again bucks the myth. You know, the whole idea of Colditz to be inherited was that, you know, everybody was working together, class divisions were, were, were irrelevant, you know, everyone was dedicated to the same idea. That's not quite true. I mean, and how could that be true? Because that is not true of life. So, yes, I think, the, the, you know, the boredom... And, and there is a lot of mental strain that, that comes from being in any kind of prison, but being in a prisoner of war camp, particularly because it is without end. And there is considerable evidence that quite a lot of people in Colditz suffered 
grievous mental distress from from being in there so long, including a few cases of more or less complete mental breakdown. Again, not a part of the Kulditz story that that we have really heard before, but yet an important part of the story. People are not supermen. They're not people are not made of this kind of granite material that doesn't that doesn't respond to stress. So again, I found those stories moving and and fascinating actually. And in some cases very poignant indeed. Now there were also at Colditz, uh, I believe, some prisoners of almost like celebrity hostages who the Nazis kept kept there. And um, how differently were they treated to the regular prisoners? Well, this is, this is, again, an extraordinary story, really. They were called the prominente, the prominent ones. And these were individual prisoners whom the Germans, the Nazi high command, had decided were of particular value. Uh, the first of them was Churchill's nephew, Winston Churchill's nephew, Giles Romilly, um, who was actually a communist, in fact. He was a journalist. He worked for the Daily Express, and he'd been captured in Norway. And he was he was the first of the prominente because... Hitler and his entourage had convinced themselves that that actually these these characters would be very useful bargaining tools that they could be held and then either swapped or threatened or in fact if they like all hostages you know if they ceased to be of value to the Nazi regime they would have been murdered Giles Romilly himself called it a privileged nightmare they were treated differently they had better food they had separate quarters in the end there were seven of them um there were two nephews of the king uh, who were held there. There was a man called Michael Alexander who pretended to be the nephew of uh, General Alexander. In fact, he wasn't anything of the sort, but the Germans believed he was, and that was enough to keep him there. Um, there was the son of the American ambassador towards the end there. So these were individuals who were considered to be valuable, but also that put them at considerable peril. Because in the end game of Colditz, and I'm not going to give it away for the for the listeners, but they were treated differently they were they were taken away and they came under huge threat as kind of last minute bargaining chips as the third reich came to pieces so so yes there is this if you like there was a sort of club within a club within a club in colditz and that was the prominente now without giving away the ending of the story as you say is it fair to say that towards the end of the war the prisoners in colditz were in some jeopardy and there was no guarantee that they would have survived the war that's exactly right. I mean, as the whole thing started to collapse, um, you see a kind of shift in the balance of power inside Colditz between the guarded and the guard. I mean, in fact, you know, the prisoners really, they don't ever quite take over the prison until the very last moment. But but it's it's beginning to shift. And there is a real danger uh, at the end. An SS um, uh, group moved into the Colditz town and it's pretty clear that there were plans afoot to destroy them all, really. You know, these were the most famous prisoners in Colditz. These were the bad boys. These were the people who'd been creating trouble. And those SS fanatics towards the end, there was a, there was a real danger that, that they were going to turn on the prisoners of Colditz and wipe them all out. So towards the end of the story, these prisoners go from being sort of, as it were, slightly defenceless people inside a well-guarded prison to realising they are going to have to defend themselves. Now, the book and the Colditz story is full of remarkable characters, some of them fairly famous people, some less so. But were there any of the prisoners that really stood out to you when you were researching the book? Well, let me give you one sort of who stood out for me for the wrong reasons and one who stood out for the right reasons. Um, 
Douglas Bader was one of the prisoners in Colditz. He was the most famous soldier on either side of the entire war, really. Now, Douglas Bader had lost both his legs in a flying accident before the war. Nonetheless, he was an enormously brave Spitfire pilot. He was shot down over um, France. Um, indeed, as he was bailing out of his Spitfire, one of his prosthetic legs caught in the uh, in the mechanism and was ripped off as he parachuted free. And amazingly, the Germans then contacted British intelligence and said, Douglas Bader, the famous um, uh, fighter pilot, needs uh, an extra leg. And amazingly, the British parachuted over spare legs for Douglas Bader in an operation called, with a sort of classic lack of British imagination, called Operation Leg. Um, and Bader was taken to Colditz. And Bader was a man of great bravery and great notoriety, but he was also not a particularly nice person. He was arrogant. He was rude. He was incredibly unpleasant um, to people he thought of lower status than him. And he treated his orderly, a, a man called Alex Ross, really badly, I felt. One of the systems that happened sort of towards the middle of the war was that ordinary soldiers could be repatriated. They could be swapped uh, in prisoner exchanges. And Alex Ross, Douglas Bader's batman, was selected for this. And he went to Douglas Bader and said, look, I've got very good news, Wing Commander, I'm going home. And Bader said, no, you're not. Bader said, you're staying here because you're my lackey, was the word he used, and, and you're going to stay here. And poor Alex Ross spent another two years inside Colditz. So I've, I'm fascinated by Bader. He's a man, as I think I write in the book, you know, he's a man with a, with a heart of oak, um, legs of tin and feet of clay. I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating figure who raised millions for charity after the war and, and widely admired, but, but again, a complicated piece of human material. And on the other side of the ledger, a character that I think very few people will ever have heard of, who was a dentist called Julius Green, a Jewish dentist from Glasgow, who looked after the teeth of the people in Colditz, but he was also a spy. He was primarily responsible for writing the coded letters that were being sent back to MI9, which was the branch of British intelligence that um, sort of was concerned with prisoner affairs, sending back really vital information, stuff that was really useful to British intelligence. Uh, and somehow uh, the character of Julius Green is rather wonderful. He's sort of constantly modest. He's He's sort of very self-mocking. He's He sort of describes himself as a sort of professional coward. But actually, he's anything of the sort. He was not only a very good dentist, he was a man of incredible bravery and great modesty. And, and we don't know his story because other louder, better well-known figures have sort of dominated the landscape of Colditz. So, you know, uh, uh, Julius Green is this sort of podgy, bespectacled, Glaswegian dentist is one of the great unsung heroes of Colditz. Now, at the end of your book, you explore the afterlives of many of the characters that who uh, feature in the story. How how easy did these men find it to readjust to society after years of imprisonment? Well, uh, like many soldiers, um, and and actually like many prisoners, uh, it was very hard. I mean, I think a lot suffered greatly. I, this is a pattern one sees really. The war for many people. And particularly the, these were very young men, very impressionable, most in their 20s when they were incarcerated. The world was never the same again. I mean, some managed to adjust. Some went on to have very successful careers. Pat Reed, who was the probably the most famous escaper from Colditz, established a sort of mini industry around Colditz. He wrote books. He you know, painted a board game. He went on to it. So he, he, in a way, sort of 
as it were, sort of benefited from Colditz in some ways. But there are other much sadder stories of people who never recovered. There was there were stories of suicide, people who had mental breakdowns and so on. So it's not, it, again, it's not the cheeky, chappy, cheery, you know, mustachioed officer who sort of strides off into the sunset and, and the world is all a better place. It, life isn't like that. And imprisonment certainly isn't like that. So without, I hope, belabouring, um, you know, the sort of, the slightly more poignant elements of this story. There is there. Are, it, it, it's it's not a black and white fable of of good fortune and good luck and happiness. You know, the, the, the humanity isn't like that. Yeah, I think I've been through all the main things I was going to ask you. I know you've only got a couple of minutes left. Is there anything else you think I should have asked you about that I haven't got round to? Well, no, not really, Rob. Except that I was rather fascinated by the stories of the women who had a role in Colditz. I mean, I was expecting this to be a strictly all male story. It, it's not. Um, for example, you know, the extraordinary character of Mrs. M, who was, um, she was a Scotswoman in Poland, in, in Warsaw, speaking perfect Polish and posing as a, as, a, as a Polish housewife, who was actually running the escape networks out of, out of Poland. And, and many of the Colditz soldiers owed her their liberty. She was extraordinary. She was already in her late 60s and she was, a, she was made a sort of fire and brimstone her real name was jane walker she was actually an mi6 agent and and her role in the whole Colditz story is, is absolutely extraordinary and then there's an, another woman who played a very important part I, I referred to julius green the sort of spy dentist well irma wernicke was the german uh, dental assistant in the town of Colditz, but she was also an anti-nazi resistance plotter and even though her father was head of the local Nazi party, she was providing the soldiers inside Colditz with absolutely crucial bits of information, particularly towards the end. So, so it's, it, you know, there are other elements to the story, again, which, which I think probably have never been given due prominence before. No, I know that, was, that was actually a really fascinating aspect of the book, I suppose, the way that Colditz connected to the, the people living in the environs around it. That's the thing about Colditz. It is bang smack above a village. I mean, you can, you can look down from Colditz into the back windows of the town. And so relations between those living in Colditz and those up in the castle were very interesting, very strained. I mean, it was quite an ideologically extreme place, the, the town of Colditz. You know, they had Nazi marches quite a lot of the time. Um, so there was great tension, but there was this kind of underground resistance also operating in the local community. And the discovery of that and the way that worked and the way that was exploited from inside is, again, one of the most extraordinary stories, I think. That was Ben McIntyre. His book, Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle, is out now published by Viking. And you can find a link to that in this episode's podcast description. You can also read a written version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is out at the end of this month. And if you'd like to hear more from Ben, then search for his name, Ben McIntyre, on our podcast feed, as we've interviewed him many times about his previous books, on subjects including the SAS, Operation Mincemeat and Soviet Spies. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 